Happy New Year, everyone. I hope you're all keeping safe and well. Now, I'm really excited to start 2021 with a brand new episode of 40 Minute Mentor. With the recent announcement of lockdown 3.0 in England, we can all do with a little bit of extra inspiration and motivation. And that's exactly what today's 40 Minute Mentor is here to do. Just over a decade ago, today's guest, James Hind, took his passion for cars and turned it into a business that has since grown into one of Europe's most popular car buying and reviewing platforms, CarWow. You've probably heard of it, or quite possibly used it yourself. Today, CarWow boasts a team of over 200 people across London, Munich and Madrid, and raised over $100 million in funding since it launched. It can also lay claim to being the world's most popular YouTube car channel with over 5 million subscribers. Having pretty much jumped straight from university into running his own business, James has some fascinating insights into the life of a tech founder and what it takes to get a new venture off the ground without a big brand on his CV. In this episode, he tells all and shares so much great advice, including how to raise money from VCs and angel investors when you've got no experience and no contacts. We talk about the growth story of Carwell, and how his approach to hiring world-class talent has evolved over time, and the challenges of expanding into new territories, and how important culture and communication are when scaling. It was a real privilege to speak to James, who I've got to know well over the last few years as a client, and he is someone that I respect hugely. It was great to hear his candid perspectives on some of the top issues that many entrepreneurs struggle with. In the current climate, it was also great to hear his optimism and some of the big positives he thinks that have come out of the pandemic. So whether you're thinking of starting up your own business or are getting ready for your first round of funding, or perhaps you're looking to scale in 2021, this episode is a must listen. So take a seat, relax, and please enjoy the next 40 minutes with a fantastic James Hind. James, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show. We always kick this off with a 30 second overview of your CV. So I'm going to start there if that's okay. Perfect. Thanks for having me, James. So, I mean, my CV is fairly short. So I went to university, uh, I went to Nottingham University, studied finance management, and thought that I wanted to go into the world of finance. So I, fa- I got myself an internship at a fund management company. And it put me off completely. <laughs> it was a very useful internship for me. It was really interesting, really good people, but I watched their world kind of collapse around them during the financial crash and made me realize that they have no real control over what they're doing. They, they, they get pushed around a lot by the market. It's, they haven't got that much control. So I thought that's not for me. And the, my then girlfriend's now wife at the time, uh, we'd met at university. She also didn't know what she wanted to do. Uh, and she persuaded us to think about starting a business. So we looked at a few ideas and a lot of the advice I read was do something that you're passionate about. And I was really, really passionate about cars. She wasn't, uh, <laughs> but we ended up doing a business uh, to do the cars together. Uh, so I've been doing, I've been running Carwell now for and coming up to 11 years. Uh, and that's pretty much the almost 99% of my CV. Amazing. Thank you very much. And I think there's something in there for anyone listening to this, given the the current economic climate, that sometimes those recessions are the are the best times to start a business. And, and you're an amazing example of a success from, from that sort of, uh, I guess, not quite knowing what's, what's next, not having the, the necessarily the traditional path. So um, awesome. Can't wait to unpack that over the course of this conversation. But I think, as you alluded to, your, your entrepreneur 
entrepreneurial journey has started earlier than most. So did you always have that kind of aspiration to be your own boss or were there other early career aspirations? No, to be honest, not particularly. Uh, I think I, I assumed that you, to start a business, you had to know some stuff and, and having had some experience in, in an industry or, or in other companies. Uh, I think it was a realization we had no idea what else we wanted to do. So what's the worst that can happen? that just made us jump into it. Love that. I mean, I, I, I'd only been working for a couple of years when I set JBM up. And uh, I think there's something about maybe I wouldn't do it now. I'm in my 30s and have a kid and a mortgage. But there is something about that, uh, that, that youthful exuberance and and not fearing the unknown that I think it makes for a, for, for a great time to give this sort of thing a crack. And um, tell us a little bit about those early days then, because you clearly had a passion for cars, as you mentioned. But what kind of gave you that ultimate push to turn this concept or idea into a into a fully fledged business yeah so it started as what the idea was ultimately around i used to use a website called rotten tomatoes which is a film review website that gets together what every critic every film magazine newspaper says about a film gives it a score and gives you all the quotes that the journalist has said and i thought that's a really handy tool and we could do the same for cars that i would read a whole load of car magazines and websites get together what they're saying helpful for a consumer someone's looking to buy a car and my girlfriend could design a website to to host it and, and run it. So and we, we just literally had the idea. And then I think a day later, I'd started on it. So she'd started designing and sketching. I'd started collecting up reviews. Amazing. So very, very much kind of just jumps in straight in. Incredible. And did I read that you literally posted your your phone number on, on the website early doors? Can you tell us a little about those kind of the early months? That came a bit later. So initially, we were running it as this car review website. And we had, we had no money to invest in it at all. We were doing some slightly dodgy SEO, trying to do a bit of PR ourselves and realized after about a year or so that we're never really going to make any money on this. We're never going to be able to get any real revenue. So we thought we had to, we had to change something. So as you said, I put my telephone number and email on the site and it said, if you're looking to buy this car, give James a ring or, or drop an email. And I'd have the odd person ring me up and I'd just help them buy a car. So I'd ring around car dealers for them and help them buy a car. So no, no real technology whatsoever. Wow. Amazing. And I think it's probably a good time before we delve into the story for our listeners to learn a little bit about what Carwell does and, and where the business is up now. And then we'll maybe go back to, to some of those early challenges that you had to overcome. Yeah. So Carwell now has evolved to, we want to help consumers get the right car for them in any way possible. So we started as a car review site, and we still run, that's still a big part of our business. So that content production, so it's written content, now video content, is a really, really big part. It's a really great way to educate consumers and make them aware of Carwow and how it can help them. So we run a big editorial team in each country. So we're in the UK, in Germany and Spain. And we now have a video team. Uh, the UK has got actually become the world's biggest YouTube car channel. So Amazing. we get like 50, 60, 70 million views every month. And we've launched very recently similar channels in Germany and Spain. Then once someone's worked out which car to buy, then go on the website and compare offers from dealerships that we work with. And so we make most of our revenue from connecting consumers with car dealers and increasingly a big proportion through car manufacturers, working with car manufacturers, largely them marketing on our website. So it's, it's a marketplace model. We're in three countries and, and plan to expand into more soon. Exciting times. Well, it's clearly turned into a huge success and we're very proud to work with you. But like any startup journey, 
I know it's not always a bed of roses. So tell our listeners a little bit about some of those biggest challenges, particularly in those early days and, and how you overcame them. So I think the, the early day challenges, the hardest bit for us was trying to get any money whatsoever, any kind of capital. So there was myself and, and my co-founder, Alex. Uh, we had no money to invest. We brought on board very soon David, who's our co-founder, uh, now CTO. So he, he built the, the kind of proper website, as we call it. He had no money to invest either. So we were really stuck. And particularly me and Alex had no background. We had no connections. David had a good background in, in tech and, and had a lot of experience. But we, as a team overall, we're very, very green. So we struggled to raise any angel investments or VC. We spoke to everyone. And we did a lot of cold emailing, which got us through the door. Uh, and eventually, you're talking probably two years in, we managed to raise any angel investment money. So that was really wow. tough because basically just a lot of no's. Constant no, 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 no. How did you cope with that at the time? Because that's probably something that founders listening to this will be maybe going through that that journey at the moment. It's, it's fair enough if you end up sort of sacking it off after after a, the hundreds of them. So where did you find that resilience from? And um, and how did you deal with the, the constant rejection? Well, I think we we believed in what we were doing. We knew that it was a tiny amount of consumers using us, but they were very, very positive about it. And we knew that the dealerships that we were working with were very positive about us. So we knew that there was a, a need there. And we, we also were aware of why a VC might say no, because we're very, very, very unproven. Very unproven as a business, as a model, and as people. So we, we understood why. We didn't take it personally or anything. And we, we just ultimately had that belief. No, fair enough. Well, I, I'm going to come on to talking about funding, because I think that's something that probably others will, will be keen to understand a bit more about. But um, the, the car buy market is is hugely competitive, you know, as, a, as an industry. How did you convince those those dealerships and manufacturers that I'd imagine were pretty resistant in the early days to come on board with you? And as an unknown entity, as you mentioned, what, what were some of the tactics you used to, to get them on side? So ultimately, we had to go very low down the food chain. So there's no point in us trying to speak to car manufacturers because we were too far too small for them to care. There's no point in trying to speak to CEOs because we were far too small. Yeah. Ultimately, actually, what we did is spoke to the salespeople. So okay. the, the, the salespeople who literally sat on the showroom floor because we could help them out. So if we help them sell one car a month, that would be big for them personally. So they cared about it and they could use us. And then as we grew, obviously, we could sell more cars so we could start speaking to more senior people. But it was literally ringing around salespeople and saying, we can help you hit your target this month. Really? Wow. And and were you doing that personally? Did it start off literally you just ringing around? Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? Really doing the, the, the groundwork, which I guess you need to. That's really interesting. So it kind of really was ground up and just kind of, I guess, the more case studies you had, the, what, the more confidence you got. With that, well, so the, more, that frankly, the more phone calls you make, the more uh, success you have. Fair enough. That's uh, that's been said many a time in recruitment as well. So clearly, it kind of uh, the momentum started to build. And um, I'm really interested. You know, we've spoken to a lot of founders now and, and work with a lot. There are certain qualities, and you've already, I think, alluded to that resilience required and that relentlessness that's required to really get this sort of thing off the ground. But I'm just interested, sort of self-reflecting. You've navigated many challenges over the last eleven years. Were there certain inherent traits within you that you think has really helped you? And any other kind of qualities you think any founders listening to this should should think about developing or perhaps getting on, on board uh, in the team early on? Yeah, I think uh, a willingness to learn is very, very important because as a founder, you have to do so many things. So I never knew what 
SEO was. So optimizing yourself to ranking Google. I never knew anything about legals of setting up a company or tech or design or anything. So you just have to learn. And that comes in many forms. It could be podcasts, which I spend a lot of time listening to still, reading, but probably most importantly, just speaking to experts, Build, building out a network of experts and, and often become friends uh, who can help you out. And, and, and listening to consumers, listening to suppliers, partners, keeping an eye on the competition, uh, but always trying to learn. Yeah, I think that that learning mindset is something that has come up a few times actually with with successful entrepreneurs like yourself. And I think there's also probably, a, I guess, as you as you got more experience and as Carl agree, you probably got to a point where you knew it was time to bring in somebody. You could, there's so far you can go. When did you get to that that sort of point? And and when did you get to the the stage where you worked out what you were best at and and where the gaps were? Uh, I think almost day one in terms of. <laughs> How I shared that with Alex, my wife, who we co-founded with, who David, our co-founder, CTO, who came on board, who knows everything about tech, and I know, which means I can know nothing about it, which is fantastic. I think, I think very, very early on, and we had very, very different roles within the business, which worked fantastically. Okay. And I think being able to cede that control to experts is yeah, very important. Do you think the as a as a single founder myself, I think there were days in especially in those first couple of years of JBM where I was climbing the walls and very grateful to have my wife who who at the time was a teacher to kind of geeing me me on and, and giving me all the support I needed. But it was a lonely existence. And, and it sounds like the delineation of responsibilities and having, I guess, your your now wife, you know, on side, it would have was really helpful. Is that something you would encourage? founders to, to think about is, is sort of going out there and finding somebody else to, to grow a, bit, a startup with? I, th- I think it makes it a lot easier because mm. you have other people who really, really care as deeply as you do. And you can be very open with them and share everything with them. I think it, that helps a lot. I wouldn't advise people rush out to find someone just for that. They've got to find a way. They've got to add value and, and complement in some way. And top with just having a, a, a buddy to moan to or, or, or bounce ideas off. But Ultimately, yeah, I, I, I think I'd struggle just being the only founder. Yeah. And and clearly, you've mentioned there's the relationship between you and your wife and actually skill set wise made a lot of sense in terms of starting the business. It's not something that all of us would do, I think, set up a business with, with one's other half. How was that dynamic? I mean, it's clearly worked incredibly well. You're married now. But was that challenging in the early years? And, and how did you overcome that for any any other uh, anyone listening to this, any couples that might be tuning in thinking about going it, uh, into business together? Well, I think, I mean, I didn't know any other way, to be honest, in terms of, I think the amount of time and the amount of time you spend thinking about the business, particularly in the early days, is just insane. It's huge. It's constant. So having your partner go through that with you is that they support you. They help balance ups or downs. And they've got an understanding of why you spend so much time on it. <laughs> yeah. Whereas I would imagine that if your partner wasn't, then they might feel a little bit, not jealous, but... Annoying. Yeah, I guess how much time you spend on it. Yeah, I guess it's probably the, the making or the breaking of a couple, really, that that experience, isn't it? That's fascinating. I, I've seen it a few times actually worked. I've worked with a couple in my in my second job who ran a boutique consultancy and it worked. And I think they they were very sensible. They they had quite distinct roles within the business. I think that definitely helped and clearly did in your instance too. Well, thank you, Jay. It's really, really interesting. And, I, and as I said, I wanted to, to come back to that funding question because I know ultimately it's the lifeblood of, of startups and something that probably people listening to this, either going through that process or thinking about setting up a business are particularly interested in. So you 
after a lot of no's, it sounds like you, you did manage to get some some really impressive angels on board and, and help you scale. Tell us a little bit about that process of how you went about approaching those sorts of investors early on. And then after that, I'd love to understand a little bit more about once you'd secured that funding, how did you prioritize where to spend the money? Because I think that's another thing that, that can go awry. So would would love your thoughts on those those two things. Yeah, we we tried to get angel investment quite a while and we didn't know anyone, so it was it was literally cold emailing people. Either people we thought were rich and had done something to do with cars or had done something to do with tech. And that was guessing their email addresses or contact them on LinkedIn, even sending physical letters to people when we really, couldn't really find old their... school. Yeah, and, and, but it was sometimes the only way we get through to people. Uh, in the end, what worked was I'd seen someone called Simon Murdoch speak at a panel and I think he, he was speaking something to do with angel investments. And I called up, emailed him after seeing him on the panel. And he he ultimately ended up leading the investment round. And we had a few others who joined us who we had called emailed. One of the most challenging things about angel investment is people generally don't have the time to do it. They want mm. someone to have done all the work or the legal or the due diligence. And then they just want to write a check yeah. effectively. So finding someone to do that is probably the hardest thing about an angel investment round. It's relatively easy, I think, once you've got a few people in to get a, a dozen more or whatever. Yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And and you clearly, once you'd secured that funding, how did you divvy up the funds to enable growth? And was that a challenging exercise in itself or was it quite clear what you needed to do? I think, yeah, I mean, it, it was quite a shock from memory because we'd gone from having virtually zero in the bank to we raised £250,000. Uh, so, so for having zero to 250,000, I think we were sensible in how we planned out spending it. And basically, we we knew that we could build the marketplace up bit by bit. So we could hire one or two people and invest a little bit of marketing, make sure it works, invest a little bit more, make sure it works. We didn't have to go out and hire loads of engineers to develop anything or spend loads and loads of marketing that, were, that was uncertain. So it, it was more or the same as what we were doing, just going from a scale of one to a scale of maybe 10 times bigger. Great. And now, I mean, it's incredible to think in those early days, just just how how many rejections you got, but you're now backed by top VCs, Axel, Boulderton, et cetera. That in itself is is no mean feat. And I know you've raised over $100 million in terms of funding. So firstly, congratulations on going through that process. I know it's a long and arduous one. What do you look for? in a VC partner other than financially? Because I know actually that you have a very close relationships with your VCs who clearly back you, you know, massively and really believe in, in what you're building. And it'd be great to understand a little bit about the, the biggest benefits you've felt from those relationships, because you, you hear a mixed bag when it comes to VCs and founders, you hear some horror stories and clearly you've done it in a really good way. So I'm sure our listeners would love to understand a bit more about that. Yeah, it's a good question. So, I mean, what we look for is, I mean, number one, it's the person themselves, the partner, and the connection we feel with them, how much value we think they can add, and a lot of referencing. And then secondary, actually, it's the it's the firm itself. So, again, referencing on the firm, particularly with the companies where, where it hasn't gone quite to plan, and how do they cope with that, and how do they react? So, a, a lot of referencing. And we we have turned down other VCs who we didn't feel that connection as much with either the partner or, or the firm as a whole. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because I guess 
a lot of founders are probably are in that situation where they're, they're desperate for the funds and, and you know, th- therefore may feel in a position that they have to take money. But actually, if you can be a bit selective, I think that can really work. Cause that, it's such an important relationship, isn't it? What are the other benefits that you felt from those relationships and, and how's that helped you on your journey? Yeah, massively, massively helpful. So, I mean, I think it's, they, they've been there and done it before. So they've seen it play out many, many times. They've seen similar scenarios, similar challenges, similar ways of approaching opportunities. And they've seen it on dozens of companies, whereas myself, I've only seen it on one. They've generally got very, very good networks. So they can introduce us to candidates, to potential suppliers, to potential future uh, VCs as well. And they're very, at least the ones we've got, and I think we're lucky and, and it's rare, but they're very human as well. So they get the kind of emotional side and, and the pressures and the challenges that not just me, but the, all, the whole exact team face. That's really good to hear. And sort of wrapping up on the fundraising side, for any aspirational founders out there who are maybe embarking on this journey, do you have any sort of final tips on the best ways to pitch to, to VCs like that and the things to think about going into that sort of process? Yeah, I think that that's one of the skills that I'm developing still, to be honest. I think when I look back at early pitch decks, they weren't fantastic. And I know Simon Murdoch from episode one jokes that when we pitched him for the first time, it definitely wasn't good. <laughs> uh, but but he, he, he saw through what wasn't a very good pitch to the business and, and us. But I, I think there's quite a lot of guides out there to how to structure a, a pitch. And I think it's worth following them, to be honest. It's a format that works fairly well. They can get it across fairly clearly and, and succinctly. And rather than kind of freestyle it or, or go off piste. I think, yeah, people have got a relatively short attention span and you've got to get across the, the key points quickly. Yeah, I guess there's a, when a VC is assessing a startup, it's a, probably a combination, isn't it? It's, it's the product market fit, it's the founder and the team. Was there anything particular that you think stood out for you in those sort of, as you've been going through those processes, were there particular things that, again, our listeners might, might learn from? Well, I think, I think one thing that stood out was we've always had very positive consumer sentiment. So really good trust reviews, really good quotes and anecdotes to use. And that really helped get it across. And I, I do a bit of angel investing now. And it's, if it's a consumer-facing business, it's the first thing I look at. Because if there's love for the product, then it's often a challenge then of getting it out there or, or making people aware of it. Yeah, definitely. And actually, and, it's the same with B2B. Again, if it's, if it's a, a recruitment firm like yourselves, it's you know, what do other people think about it and what do other people like me say about them? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that really rings true. I think we've always pride ourselves on, on growing through word of mouth and referral and, and therefore really investing the time in building those meaningful relationships. And I think that's, you know, I think if anyone actually thinks it through logically, when you want to go to a restaurant, you, you, you ask your friends or you check online in the reviews. So it makes a lot of sense when it comes uh, to that. I think you guys are the only uh, recruitment firm I've referred anyone to. So. Yeah, oh, I'm honoured. Thank you, James. It's much appreciated. Well, I wanted to talk a bit more about the, the growth of the business and, and, and your journey as a founder as well, because it's been a it's been an amazing one. And I know you've got the team up to kind of around 200 people now. You have kind of been through that the ups and downs of hiring. You've you've had a pandemic to contend with. We know firsthand and, and have loved working with you. Finding the right people is is difficult but crucial. And um, so our listeners, I'm sure, would love to understand a bit about how you've hired talent through the the different sort of phases of the business. And what have been your biggest learnings from recruitment? Yeah, I think, I mean, 
we've had lots of amazing people who have made incredible things happen. And we've had people who haven't worked out quite, I mean, often quite badly haven't worked out. And I think the biggest thing we've learned is we need to find what works for Carwell. And that's different to what works for other companies. So someone coming in from another company that's maybe bigger, very successful, just because they did well there doesn't mean they're necessarily going to do well at Carlisle whatsoever. So I think I placed far too much emphasis in the past on what they'd done before and, and had I heard of the company and did I think the company was good versus is this person really going to be right for how we work, what we want, and particularly what we want at that stage. Yeah, that's really interesting. As you go through the different phases of the business, how did you actually go about doing it? Were the, in the early days, was it through referrals? Was it the recruiters? How has that process evolved for you? Well, I think the, the very early days was largely us contacting people on LinkedIn to outreach. Yeah. We got a, a good few has from there. And, and David brought in some of the people he'd worked with before, so referrals there on the engineering side. I think later we relied on job boards and recruitment consultants, fairly standard stuff. Uh, and now more it switched to try and find referrals. Yeah. And, and generally, almost all the very senior people we hire bring in people they've worked with before yeah. the companies, which is very, very beneficial. Yeah, it makes sense. No, that's that's great. And you've admitted here and publicly about the, the hiring mistakes you've made. It's kind of a rite of passage. I think we've all been there. I, I, I find it the, the hardest part of my job, actually, getting it, you know, hiring into JBM and have definitely got it wrong uh, at times. How has your process evolved to ensure you have a better chance of, of hiring the right talent? And it would be great to understand now you've been through that journey, like what type of person really does succeed at Carwell? Yeah. So I, th I think the hiring process has evolved from literally one interview and then giving them the job <laughs> to now far more structured. So far more documentation as well, which sounds quite boring and, and processy, but asking the same questions to, to each candidate and then very importantly, handing it over to the next interviewer so that they're not just asking exactly the same questions yeah. and, and not really learning anything more. I think also learn the importance of bringing in peers to that role and direct reports to that role. Because in the past, we'd hire someone and say, by the way, you've got a new boss starting on Monday. And they weren't involved. Whereas now it's a good flag. It's a good interview step. And it just makes the people who they'll inherit as team members as that they just feel bought in. Yeah. And they feel connection with, with the person from day one. So I think that's, that's what we've learned as well. That's really helpful. And I know you also, for particular roles, will use specific tasks that I guess give you a really good insight into actually if they were in that situation, how they think, how they structure their, how they problem solve. We've, we've, we've used tasks quite a bit. The other thing we've used more recently, a lot more of it, asking them to show us past work. We have had some people who've done tasks well, but in reality didn't work in that way. Whereas asking them to show us past work has, has worked uh, well as well. That's a really uh, interesting um, way of approaching it. What does work then in terms of car? Because you, you, as you mentioned, you, you kind of you've made the mistakes, but now, and I think I've seen, you know, from 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 the working with you guys over the last couple of years, there seems to be that you're getting in really high caliber people that clearly are landing well and and, and progressing. So, what makes a good car wow candidate? No, I think I think we've we've been learning this as well and starting to document it a lot more. So, I mean, ultimately, what we like are really smart people who love working together, solving problems, uh, and don't take themselves too seriously. And they're very then adaptable. They work well with other people, so they, they, they get stuff done. 
And there's lots of problems to solve, frankly. There's lots of stuff to innovate on or fix or opportunities to grab that we don't know the path. And they've got, they've got to work it out. Now, that was what that. works best. Yeah, I think that's that's the exciting thing about startups, isn't it? And and I know you have that sort of culture where you can be very hands-on in, in solving problems and, 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 and being a part of the solution. And I think that's something that a lot of the candidates we work with are really excited by. And having the freedom to fail and freedom to try things, I think, is something that a lot of candidates want. Alongside growing the UK business, you're now you know, kind of expanded into to Germany and Spain. I know those markets are going incredibly well. With rapid expansion comes challenges. How has that impacted the culture at Carla? Because you know you've obviously worked incredibly hard on building that, and it's it is hard to maintain. You know, especially when you've gone from knowing everyone's name and sitting in the same office to distributed across the world. How have you handled that that evolution? And how do you kind of what are the things you're doing to work on maintaining that culture as you scale? Yeah, so it, yeah, it's been a learning curve, and we were really bad at it to start with. Because we, we launched Germany when we had probably, I don't know, 80-odd people in the UK and a very, very tight-knit team where everyone was in literally one floor of the office, tiny office, everyone knew each other. And then we launched in Germany. And Germany was a small team to start with, obviously, but we kind of forgot about Germany a lot. We're very much a UK company. Right. And we, we literally kind of forgot about Germany quite a bit because there was so much going on in the UK as well. But luckily, our, our CEO there, Philip, kept pushing on and kept improving how we became an international company. And we're still not perfect by any means, but we've got a lot, lot better at it. And the biggest thing that's helped is the pandemic. Really? That's so interesting. A tiny thing, but everyone being on Hangouts or Zoom has, has made collaboration far, far better. Because typically, a meeting would have been in this meeting room, seven people in the UK, face-to-face with two people joining, one from Germany, one from Spain, but they can't see people particularly well. They can't hear people particularly well. Just not the same. Everyone being on on Hangouts or Zoom is much, 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 much better. It's great to hear that in a way, because I know like you, like me, having to deal with uh, the unknown of the pandemic when, when it started, I think any founder, it, it was a very stressful time. And the un- not knowing how the business will react, how consumers will react, caused a lot of anxiety and stress. But it's wonderful to hear that actually it's brought the business closer together. It's actually improved the culture. And that culture thing, I really appreciate your honesty around that point, because I think We've had GMs from you know, Google and Airbnb come on that have talked about the benefits, but also the challenges of not being in the HQ. And I think um, it's great that you're kind of self-aware enough to know that, that they haven't always got it right. But it's something that I guess when you go into new markets now, it's something you can, you're probably that much more aware of, just kind of making sure those same mistakes don't happen again. Have there been any other challenges that you've had to overcome during the pandemic that, or learnings from it that, that, that you think others would, would benefit from hearing about? I mean, lots of challenges, without a doubt. I mean, no, no one prepares for virtually zero revenue for months. And lots of lots of adoption of furlough schemes, et cetera, at the time as well, which luckily now we're not using anything. I think, but there's a lot of healthy stuff as well that comes out. And there is more collaboration because we had to focus better. We had to get more efficient. And that was a, a very, very healthy thing for the business. And also it pushed us to innovate and take bolder steps more. We had less to lose at the time, particularly March, April, May. So we, we innovated faster and, and weren't afraid. And I think it's, we almost want to pretend that it's a pandemic every year or so, just to go through the exercise of, okay, what would we do now? 
what, yeah. what really matters, what's what's a bit inefficient that we really should we tighten up. Yeah, I guess it sharpens the mind, doesn't it? That's a really good point. You're a founder CEO. It's a hard job. You've been incredibly honest about the ups and downs on, on your journey. How has your role as a CEO evolved and how's your leadership style evolved over the years? And is there other particular bits of advice that, you know, you would give yourself now sort of 10 years ago, uh, just starting out now that you know uh, the journey you've been through? Yeah, I mean, it evolves constantly from doing everything as in picking up the phone and making every sales call to, uh, well, I still do that every, every so often now as well. <laughs> I can't enjoy it, but it does evolve. And I think the leadership bit is the biggest thing. And the team dynamics change a lot as well. So we, we have got a lot of challenges when we hit what's called Dunbar's number, which is kind of rule of average that you can only maintain connections with 150 people. And it's an average, but we found that the culture was very, very, very strong up till about not quite 150 for us, more like 120 maybe. Everyone knew each other. Most were in the UK. And then when it got, when it got stretched over that, communication just wasn't good enough and lots of stuff broke down and lots of challenges. So that fit, the biggest thing we tried to fix was that communication. So what's in my head? What do I want? What do we want from people? What do we expect from people? What's our feedback to people about how they're performing and, and what they can do better at? That's all the stuff that we had to improve that to, to make it much better again. So I, I think the biggest learning is that communication and how to communicate with lots and lots of people at once. Yeah, and I think actually that's, to get to 120 or 130 and start to have those issues in itself is, is an achievement I found in a business of six at times comes go down because you think everyone knows what's going on. But 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 you just sometimes you just need to bring together and, and just make sure that you're over communicating, I think, particularly in this climate. If we were to ask your colleagues or the VCs, how would you want them to describe your leadership style? And what is it you feel that you're Kind of, what are you most proud of in that respect, and what what are also the kind of work ons for you going forward as a, as a founder, as a CEO? Yeah, I mean, I think what I'd want colleagues, VCs, to say is that I mean, basically, put together a really good team and help them work very efficiently to get great stuff done. That's that's what I'd like them to say. I think areas to work on is I don't think I'm the clearest with what I want and what I expect from people. And it's the thing I struggle with because often I don't quite know what to expect from people. So if I've never hired a certain role before, we don't know quite what to expect. It's not yeah. like we have lots of comparables. So it's, it's a bit more on kind of, does it feel like th that this person's great and that things are very different and, and much more positive than, than we didn't have them. So it, it yeah. is, I find it quite hard to know what to expect. Yeah, that's, that's, that's totally fair. I think the role of a founder is wonderful and challenging and, and kind of is a bit of a roller coaster of emotions. And we're seeing that, that burnout is happening more and more. How do you personally switch off from the all-encompassing nature of running Carwow and startup life? And for any founders listening to this that are struggling, particularly right now, with that balancing act, what, what advice do you have? Because you've been at the helm for 11 years now. You've seen the business that the really scrappy challenging days to the the global expansion ones like what, what, what's your take on that yeah i mean i think i'm not perfect but i'm not a role model at all for it but i learned to get better at it i think it ultimately comes down to for me it's if something's keeping me up at night ultimately means it's a problem i've got to try and fix and, and it sounds obvious but making myself aware of that mm -hmm. uh, it's a tiny thing but i find if i write something down if something's keeping me up at, at night if i write it down then it helps clear my mind and I, I then just need 
to deal with it then in the morning or, or, or properly think about what I'm going to do. Mm. And then a, another simple thing is I've learned now that I can switch off on holiday. And if I, at times I haven't been able to, and that's because again, ultimately something's not right. I don't feel like stuff can carry on. But now I can put my phone away in a safe for three or four days in a row and not check it, which means I can switch off. And then inevitably when I do check my phone after three or four days, there's nothing urgent. Yeah. And that's credit to you in terms of putting the right people around you and getting the business to the scale it is now that you actually have empowered others or hired others that can do some of the things you always had to do. So that's, I think that's really good advice. Sadly, James, we're coming towards the end of, of our chat, but I just wanted to ask our, our final wrap up questions. And the first one's about mentorship, unsurprisingly, given we're you're on the 40 minute mentor. Do you have a mentor or mentors and how have they helped your career journey? Yeah, yeah, I, I do. Uh, so I've had a, a few different people over the years that have helped me. And all of them, I think, were built up a, a couple of years ago or, or more ago. So we've got a chair, a guy called Giles Andrews, who I've always, I, I reached out to him, I don't know, eight years ago. And now he's a chair and, and ultimately a mentor as well as chair. I've got an exec coach, uh, Helen Hassan, who's very, very good at making me a better manager, particularly, and, and leader. And then a few people who were good guidance in the early days and and also quite a big peer network of fellow CEOs because everyone's going through largely the same problems and they're very, very useful to get recommendations, hear how they dealt with things and, and lots of empathy between each other. I think there is something that we've I've heard, which is amazing, the different uh, answers to that question that we get. But the, one of the consistent things is actually that importance of, of peer mentorship. It's something that's overlooked, I think. But uh, I, I, I have a similar sort of network of headhunters and, and, and recruitment owners that, again, they've just been on that journey with you. So it really makes a difference just sometimes picking up the phone, even if it's just a, to have a little bit of a rant. <laughs> but it does help, doesn't it? It's like a, a joint therapy session. Well, I'm sure the next 12 months are going to be super exciting for you. So would love to learn a bit about what 2021 has in store for Carwow, but also for you personally? Yeah, I mean, 2021, I mean, me personally moving out of London in January. So we bought a house and, and we never planned to do that. And it's only because we realize, oh, I realize now particularly that I never used to work from home. Now I find working from home for probably three days a week, very efficient, and then two days in the office. So that's a big change. And I think one of the big changes for Carwow is how do we now not return to the office like we used to, but use what we've learned as efficiencies work from home, but mix it with the office. We're also looking at, uh, we're likely fundraise at some point towards the end of next year and lots of growth in the countries we're in and starting to think about the next as well. Very exciting. Uh, well, we wish you all the very best for that. Having made the the move out of London five years ago, I was one of the first in my friendship group to do it, but uh, have, have never looked back. And uh, actually, it's been lovely in, in this climate. I feel very grateful to have a bit of greenery and peace and quiet around me. Probably the opposite to you. I'm, I'm kind of really looking forward to getting the buzz of, of London back when I can. But um, it's nice to have the balance, isn't it? And finally, James, for any of our listeners who are thinking about maybe launching their own business or making some big, bold career transition, what final piece of advice would you leave them before they make that call? Learn from others, as in speak to others and, and don't be afraid to reach out cold. I think people are generally quite happy to share their learnings and, and help people avoid mistakes that they made. So I think don't be afraid to reach out. Awesome. Thank you, James. It's a great way to end this chat. It's been a real pleasure having you on the 40 Minute Mentor. So thank you for sharing your story and all the very best for the next year. Thank you. Cheers. 
I really hope you enjoyed that episode of the 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.